Preface and Introduction of Travels in West Africa This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Travels in West Africa by Mary H. Kingsley Preface and Introduction To the Reader What this book wants is not a simple preface, but an apology, and a very brilliant and convincing one at that. Recognizing this fully and feeling quite incompetent to write such a masterpiece, I have asked several literary friends to write one for me, but they have kindly but firmly declined, stating that it is impossible satisfactorily to apologize for my liberties with Lindley, Murray, and the Queen's English. I am therefore left to make a feeble apology for this book myself, and all I can personally say is that it would have been much worse than it is had it not been for Dr. Henry Gullimard, who has not edited it, or of course the whole affair would have been better. But who has most kindly gone through the proof-sheets, lassoing prepositions which were straying outside their sentence stockade, taking my eye off the water-cask, and fixing it on the scenery where I meant it to be, saying firmly in pencil on margins, No, you don't, when I was committing some more than usually heinous literary crime, and so on. In cases where his activities in these things may seem to the reader to have been wanting, I beg to state that they really were not. It is I who have declined to ascend to a higher level of lucidity and correctness of diction than I am fitted for. I cannot forbear from mentioning my gratitude to Mr. George Macmillan for his patience and kindness with me, a mere jungle of information on West Africa. Whether you, my reader, will share my gratitude is, I fear, doubtful, for if it had not been for him I should never have attempted to write a book at all, and in order to excuse his having induced me to try, I beg to state that I have written only on things that I know from personal experience and very careful observation. I have never accepted an explanation of a native custom from one person alone, nor have I set down things as being prevalent customs from having seen a single instance. I have endeavored to give you an honest account of the general state and manner of life in Lower Guinea, and some description of the various types of country there. In reading this section you must make allowances for my love of this sort of country, with its great forests and rivers, and its animistic-minded inhabitants, and for my ability to be more comfortable there than in England. Your superior culture instincts may militate against your enjoying West Africa, but if you go there, you will find things as I have said. January 1897 Preface to the Abridged Edition of Travels in West Africa When, on my return to England, for my second sojourn in West Africa, I discovered to my alarm that I was, by a freak of fate, the sea-serpent of the season, I published, in order to escape from this reputation, a very condensed, much abridged version of my experience in Lower Guinea, and I thought that I need never explain about myself or Lower Guinea again. This was one of my errors. 
I have been explaining ever since, and, though not reconciled to so doing, I am more or less resigned to it, because it gives me pleasure to see that English people can take an interest in that land they have neglected. Nevertheless, it was a shock to me when the publisher said more explanation was required. I am thankful to say the explanation they required was merely on what plan the abridgment of my first account had been made. I can manage that explanation easily. It has been done by removing from it certain sections whole, and leaving the rest very much as it first stood. Of course, it would have been better if I had totally reformed and rewritten the book in pellucid English, but that is beyond me, and I feel at any rate this book must be better than it was. For there is less of it, and I dimly hope critics will now see that there is a saving grace in disconnectedness, for, owing to that disconnectedness, whole chapters have come out without leaving holes. As for the part that is left in, I have already apologized for its form, and I cannot help it, for Lower Guinea is like what I have said it is. No one who knows it has sent home contradictions of my description of it, or its natives, or their manners or customs, and they have had, by now, ample time and opportunity. The only complaints I have had regarding my account from my fellow West Coasters have been that I might have said more. I trust my forbearance will send a thrill of gratitude through readers of the 736-page edition. There is, however, one section that I reprint regarding which I must say a few words. It is that on the trade and labor problem in West Africa, particularly the opinion therein expressed regarding the liquor traffic. This part has brought down on me much criticism from the missionary societies and their friends, and I beg gratefully to acknowledge the honorable fairness with which the controversy has been carried on by the great Wesleyan Methodist Mission to the Gold Coast and the Baptist Mission to the Congo. It has not ended in our agreement on this point, but it has raised my esteem of missionary societies considerably, and any one interested in this matter I beg to refer to the Baptist Magazine for October 1897. Therein will be found my answer, and the comments on it by a competent missionary authority. For the rest of this matter I beg all readers of this book to bear in mind that I confine myself to speaking only of the bit of Africa I know, West Africa. During this past summer I attended a meeting at which Sir George Taubin Goldie spoke, and was much struck with the truth of what he said on the difference of different African regions. He divided Africa into three zones. Firstly, that region where white races could colonize in the true sense of the word, and form a great native-born white population, namely the region of the Cape. Secondly, a region where the white race could colonize, but to a less extent, an extent analogous to that in India, namely the highlands of central East Africa, and parts of northern Africa. Thirdly, a region where the white races cannot colonize in a true sense of the word, namely the West African region, and in those regions he pointed out one of the main elements of prosperity and advance is the native African population. I am quoting his words from memory, 
possibly imperfectly, but there is very little reliable printed matter to go on when dealing with Sir George Taupin Goldie, which is regrettable because he himself is an experienced and reliable authority. I am, however, quite convinced that these aforesaid distinct regions are regions that the practical politician dealing with Africa must recognize and keep constantly in mind when attempting to solve the many difficulties that that great continent presents. And sincerely hope every reader of this work will remember that I am speaking of that last zone, the zone wherein white races cannot colonize in a true sense of the word, but which is nevertheless a vitally important region to a great manufacturing country like England, for therein are vast undeveloped markets wherein she can sell her manufactured goods and purchase raw material for her manufacturers at a reasonable rate. Having a rooted natural feminine hatred for politics, I have no inclination to become diffuse on them, as I have on the errors of other people's cooking or ideas and decoration. I know I am held to be too partial to France in West Africa, too fond of pointing out her brilliant achievements there, too fond of saying the native is as happy, and possibly happier, under her rule than under ours, and also that I am given to a great admiration for Germans. But this is just like any common-sense Englishwoman. Of course I am devoted to my own John, but still Monsieur is brave, bright, and fascinating. Mein Herr is possessed of courage and commercial ability in the highest degree, and, besides, he takes such a lot of trouble to know the real truth about things, and tells them to you so calmly and carefully. And our own John, well, of course, he is everything that's good and great, but he makes a shocking fool of himself at times, particularly in West Africa. I should enjoy holding what one of my justly irritated expurgators used to call one of my little thanksgiving services here, but I will not, for, after all, it would be impossible for me to satisfactorily thank those people who, since my publication of this book, have given me help and information on the subject of West Africa. Chief amongst them have been Mr. A. L. Jones, Sir R. B. N. Walker, Mr. Irvin, and Mr. John Holt. I have not added to this book any information I have received since I wrote it, as it does not seem to me fair to do so. My only regret regarding it is that I have not dwelt sufficiently on the charm of West Africa. It is so difficult to explain such things. But I am sure there are amongst my readers people who know by experience the charm some countries exercise over men countries very different from each other and from West Africa. The charm of West Africa is a painful one. It gives you pleasure when you are out there, but when you are back here it gives you pain by calling you. It sends up before your eyes a vision of a wall of dancing white rainbow-gemmed surf, playing on a shore of yellow sand before an audience of stately cocoa-palms or of a great mangrove-watered bronze river, or of a vast isle in some forest cathedral, and you hear, nearer to you than the voice of the people around, nearer than the roar of the city traffic, the sound of the surf that is breaking on the shore down there, 
and the sound of the wind talking on the hard palm-leaves and the thump of the natives' tom-toms, or the cry of the parrots passing over the mangrove swamps in the evening-time, or the sweet long mellow whistle of the plantain warblers calling up the dawn, and everything that is round you grows poor and thin in the face of the vision, and you want to go back to the coast that is calling you, saying, as the African says to the departing soul of his dying friend, Come back, come back, this is your home. M. H. Kingsley, October, 1897 End of Preface Introduction Relateth the various causes which impelled the authors to embark upon the voyage. It was in 1893 that, for the first time in my life, I found myself in possession of five or six months which were not heavily forestalled, and, feeling like a boy with a new half-crown, I lay about in my mind, as Mr. Bunyan would say, as to what to do with them. Go and learn your tropics and science. Where on earth am I to go? I wandered, for tropics are tropics wherever found. So I got down an atlas, and saw that either South America or West Africa must be my destination, for the Malayan region was too far off and too expensive. Then I got Wallace's geographical distribution, and after reading that master's article on the Ethiopian region, I hardened my heart and closed with West Africa. I did this the more readily, because, while I knew nothing of the practical condition of it, I knew a good deal both by tradition and report of Southeast America, and remembered that Yellow Jack was endemic, and that a certain naturalist, my superior physically and mentally, had come very near getting starved to death in the depressing society of an expedition slowly perishing of want and miscellaneous fevers up the Parana. My ignorance regarding West Africa was soon removed, and although the vast cavity in my mind that it occupied is not even yet half filled up, there is a great deal of very curious information in its place. I used the word curious advisedly, for I think many seemed to translate my request for practical hints and advice into an advertisement that rubbish may be shot here. The same information is in a state of great confusion still, although I have made heroic efforts to codify it. I find, however, that it can almost all be got in under the following different headings, namely, and to wit, the dangers of West Africa, the disagreeables of West Africa, the diseases of West Africa, the things you must take to West Africa, the things you find most handy in West Africa, the worst possible things you can do in West Africa. I inquired of all my friends, as a beginning, what they knew of West Africa. The majority knew nothing. A percentage said, "'Oh, you can't possibly go there. That's where Sierra Leone is, the white man's grave, you know.' If these were pressed further, one occasionally found that they had had relations who had gone out there after having been sad trials. But, on consideration of their having left not only West Africa, but this world, were now forgiven and forgotten.' I next turned my attention to cross-examining the doctors. Deadliest spot on earth, they said cheerfully, and showed me maps of the geographical distribution of disease. Now I do not say that a country looks inviting when it is colored in shields green or a bilious yellow, but these colors may arise from lack of artistic gift in the cartographer. 
There is no mistaking what he means by black, however, and black you'll find they color West Africa, from above Sierra Leone to below the Congo. I wouldn't go there if I were you, said my medical friends. You'll catch something, but if you must go, and you're as obstinate as a mule, just bring me— and then followed a list of commissions from here to New York, any one of which, but I only found that afterwards. All my informants referred me to the missionaries. There were, they said, in an airy way, lots of them down there, and had been for many years. So to missionary literature I addressed myself with great ardor, alas, only to find that these good people wrote their reports not to tell you how the country they resided in was, but how it was getting on towards being what it ought to be, and how necessary it was that their readers should subscribe more freely, and not get any foolishness into their heads about obtaining an inadequate supply of souls for their money. I also found a fearful confirmation of my medical friend's statement about its unhealthiness, and various details of the distribution of cotton shirts over which I did not linger. From the missionaries it was, however, that I got my first idea about the social condition of West Africa. I gathered that there existed there, firstly, the native human beings, the raw material as it were, and that these were led either to good or bad respectively by the missionary and by the trader. There were also the government representatives, whose chief business it was to strengthen and consolidate the missionaries' work, a function they carried on but indifferently well. But as for those traders, well, I put them down under the dangers of West Africa at once. Subsequently I came across the good old coast-yarn of Howe, when a trader from that region went thence, it goes without saying where, the fallen angel, without a moment's hesitation, vacated the infernal throne, Milton, in his favor. This, I beg to note, is the marine form of the legend. When it occurs terrestrially, the trader becomes a Liverpool mate, but of course no one need believe it either way. It is not a missionary story. Naturally, while my higher intelligence was taken up with attending to these statements, my mind got set on going, and I had to go. Fortunately, I could number among my acquaintances one individual who had lived on the coast for seven years. Not, it is true, in that part of it which I was bound for. Still, his advice was preeminently worth attention, because, in spite of his long residence in the deadliest spot of the region, he was still in fair-going order. I told him I intended going to West Africa, and he said, "'When you have made up your mind to go to West Africa, the very best thing you can do is to get it unmade again, and go to Scotland instead. But, if your intelligence is not strong enough to do so, abstain from exposing yourself to the direct rays of the sun, take four grains of quinine every day for a fortnight before you reach the rivers, and get some introductions to the Wesleyans. They are the only people on the coast who have got a horse with feathers.' My attention was next turned to getting ready things to take with me. Having opened upon myself the sluice-gates of advice, I rapidly became distracted. My friends and their friends alike seemed to labor under the delusion that I intended to charter a steamer and was a person of wealth beyond the dreams of avarice. This not being the case, the only thing to do was to gratefully listen and let things drift. Not only do the things you have got to take, but the things you have got to take them in, present a fine series of problems to the young traveller. 
Crowds of witnesses testified to the forms of baggage-holders they had found invaluable, and these, it is unnecessary to say, were all different in form and material. With all this embarras de choix, I was too distracted to buy anything new in the way of baggage except a long waterproof sack, neatly closed at the top with a bar and handle. Into this I put blanket, boots, books, in fact anything that would not go into my portmanteau or black bag. From the first I was haunted by a conviction that its bottom would come out, but it never did, and in spite of the fact that it had ideas of its own about the arrangement of its contents, it served me well throughout my voyage. It was the beginning of August, ninety-three, when I first left England for the coast. Preparations of quinine with postage partially paid arrived up to the last moment, and a friend hastily sent two newspaper clippings, one entitled, A Week in a Palm-Oil Tub, which was supposed to describe the sort of accommodation, companions, and fauna likely to be met with on a steamer going to West Africa, and on which I was to spend seven, two, the graphic contributors, one, the other from the Daily Telegraph, reviewing a French book of phrases in common use in Dahomey. The opening sentence in the latter was, Help, I am drowning. Then came the inquiry, If a man is not a thief? And then another cry, The boat is upset. Get up, you lazy scamps, is the next exclamation, followed almost immediately by the question, Why has not this man been buried? It is fetish that has killed him, and he must lie here exposed with nothing on him until only the bones remain, is a cheerful answer. This sounded discouraging to a person whose occupation would necessitate going about considerably in boats, and whose fixed desire was to study fetish. So, with a feeling of foreboding gloom, I left London for Liverpool, none the more cheerful for the matter-of-fact manner in which the steamboat agents had informed me that they did not issue return tickets by the West African lines of steamers. I will not go into the details of that voyage here, much as I am given to discursiveness. They are more amusing than instructive, for on my first voyage out I did not know the coast, and the coast did not know me, and we mutually terrified each other. I fully expected to get killed by the local nobility and gentry. They thought I was connected with the world's women's temperance association, and collecting shocking details for subsequent magic lantern lectures on the liquor traffic. So fearful misunderstandings arose, but we gradually educated each other, and I had the best of the affair, for all I had got to teach them was that I was only a beetle and fetish, hunter, and so forth, while they had to teach me a new world and a very fascinating course of study I found it. And whatever the coast may have to say against me, for my continual desire for hairpins and other pins, my intolerable habit of getting into water, the abominations full of ants that I brought into their houses, or things emitting at unexpectedly short notice, vivid and awful stenches, they cannot but say that I was a diligent pupil, who honestly tried to learn the lessons they taught me so kindly, though some of those lessons were hard to a person who had never previously been even in a tame bit of tropics, and whose life for many years had been an entirely domestic one in a university town. One by one I took my old ideas derived from books and thoughts based on imperfect knowledge and weighed them against the real life around me, and found them either worthless or wanting. 
The greatest recantation I had to make I made humbly before I had been three months on the coast in 1893. It was of my idea of the traders. What I had expected to find them was a very different thing to what I did find them, and of their kindness to me I can never sufficiently speak, for on that voyage I was utterly out of touch with the government circles, and utterly dependent on the traders, and the most useful lesson of all the lessons I learnt on the West Coast in 1893 was that I could trust them. Had I not learnt this very thoroughly, I could never have gone out again and carried out the voyage I give you a sketch of in this book. Thanks to the agent, I have visited places I could never otherwise have seen, and to the respect and affection in which he is held by the native, I owe it that I have done so in safety. When I have arrived off his factory in a steamer or canoe unexpected, unintroduced, or turned up equally unheralded out of the bush in a dilapidated state, he has always received me with that gracious hospitality which must have given him, under coast conditions, very real trouble and inconvenience, things he could have so readily found logical excuses against entailing upon himself for the sake of an individual whom he had never seen before, whom he most likely would never see again, and whom it was no earthly profit to him to see then. He has bestowed himself, Allah only knows where, on his small trading vessel, so that I might have his one cabin. He has fished me out of sea and fresh water with boat-hooks. He has continually given me good advice, which, if I had only followed, would have enabled me to keep out of water and any other sort of affliction. And although he holds the meanest opinion of my intellect for going to such a place as West Africa, for beetles, fishes, and fetish, he has given me the greatest assistance in my work." The value of that work I pray you withhold judgment on, until I lay it before you in some ten volumes or so, mostly in Latin. All I know that is true regarding West African facts I owe to the traders. The errors are my own. To Dr. Gunther of the British Museum, I am deeply grateful for the kindness and interest he has always shown regarding all the specimens of natural history that I have been able to lay before him, the majority of which must have had very old tales to tell him. Yet his courtesy and attention gave me the thing a worker in any work most wants, the sense that the work was worth doing, and sent me back to work again, with the knowledge that if these things interested a man like him, it was a more than sufficient reason for me to go on collecting them. To Mr. W. H. F. Kirby I am much indebted for his working out my small collection of certain orders of insects, and to Mr. Thomas S. Forshaw for the great help he has afforded me in revising my notes. It is impossible for me even to catalogue my debts of gratitude still outstanding to the West Coast. Chiefly am I indebted to Mr. C. G. Hudson, whose kindness and influence enabled me to go up the Ogo, and to see as much of Congo, France, yes, as I have seen, and his efforts to take care of me were most ably seconded by Mr. Fildes. The French officials in Congo, France, never hindered me, and always treated me with the greatest kindness. 
You may say there was no reason why they should not, for there is nothing in this fine colony of France that they need be ashamed of any one seeing, but I find it is customary for travellers to say the French officials throw obstacles in the way of any one visiting their possessions, so I merely beg to state this was decidedly not my experience, although my deplorable ignorance of French prevented me from explaining my humble intentions to them. The Reverend Dr. Nassau and Mr. R. E. Dennett have enabled me, by placing at my disposal the rich funds of their knowledge of native life and idea, to amplify any deductions from my own observation. Mr. Dennett's work I have not dealt with in this work, because it refers to tribes I was not amongst on this journey, but to a tribe I made the acquaintance with in my ninety-three voyage, the Fjord. Dr. Nassau's observations I have referred to. Herr von Luck, Vice-Governor of Cameroon, I am indebted to for not only allowing me, but for assisting me by every means in his power to go up to Cameroon's peak, and to the Governor of Cameroon, Herr von Putkamir, for his constant help and kindness. Indeed, so great has been the willingness to help me of all these gentlemen, that it is a wonder to me, when I think of it, that their efforts did not project me right across the continent and out at Zanzibar. That this brilliant affair did not come off is owing to my own lack of enterprise, for I did not want to go across the continent, and I do not hanker after Zanzibar, but only to go puddling about obscure districts in West Africa, after raw fetish and fresh-water fishes. I owe my ability to have profited by the kindness of these gentlemen on land to a gentleman of the sea, Captain Murray. He was captain of the vessel I went out on in 1893, and he saw then that my mind was full of errors that must be eradicated if I was going to deal with the coast successfully, and so he eradicated those errors and replaced them with sound knowledge from his own stores collected during an acquaintance with the west coast of over thirty years. The education he has given me has been of the greatest value to me, and I sincerely hope to make many more voyages under him, for I well know he has still much to teach, and I to learn. Last but not least, I must chronicle my debts to the ladies. First, to those two courteous Portuguese ladies, Dona Ana de Sousa Cantinoje e Chichoro, and her sister, Dona Maria de Sousa Cantinho, who did so much for me in Cangonco, in 1893, and have remained, I am proud to say, my firm friends ever since. Lady MacDonald and Miss Mary Slessor I speak of in this book, but only faintly sketch the pleasure and help they have afforded me. Nor have I fully expressed my gratitude for the kindness of Madame Hacot of Lembarene, or Madame Forget of Talacuga. Then there are a whole list of nuns belonging to the Roman Catholic missions on the southwest coast, ever cheery and charming companions, and Frau Flen, whom it was a continual pleasure to see in Cameroons, and discourse with once again on things that seemed so far off then, art, science, and literature, and Mrs. H. Dugan of Cameroons, too, who used, whenever I came into that port, to rescue me from fearful states of starvation for toilet necessaries, and lend a sympathetic and intelligent ear to the awful sufferings I had gone through, until Cameroons became to me a thing to look forward to. When in the Canaries in 1892, 
I used to smile, I regretfully own, at the conversation of a gentleman from the Gold Coast who was up there recuperating after a bad fever. His conversation consisted largely of anecdotes of friends of his, and nine times in ten he used to say, He's dead now. Alas, my own conversation may be smiled at now for the same cause. Many of my friends, mentioned even in this very recent account of the coast, are dead now. Most of those I learned to know in 1893, chief among these is my old friend, Captain Bowler, of Bonnie, from whom I first learned a certain power of comprehending the African and his form of thought. I have great reason to be grateful to the Africans themselves, to cultured men and women, among them like Charles Umbu, Mbo, Sanga Glass, Jane Harrington and her sister at Gaboon, and to the bush natives, but of my experience with them I give further details, so I need not dwell on them here. I apologize to the general reader for giving so much detail on matters that really only affect myself, and I know that the indebtedness which all African travelers have to the white residents in Africa is a matter usually very lightly touched on. No doubt my voyage would seem a grander thing if I omitted mention of the help I received, but— well, there was a German gentleman once who evolved a camel out of his inner consciousness. It was a wonderful thing still, you know. It was not a good camel, only a thing which people personally unacquainted with camels could believe in. Now I am ambitious to make a picture, if I make one at all, that people who do not know the original can believe in, even if they criticize its points, and so I give you details a more showy artist would omit. End of introduction.